The material contained in this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice. You should not act or fail to act on anything based on any of the material contained herein without first consulting with a lawyer. My guests and I strive to ensure accuracy in this podcast, but we do not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any of its contents. Welcome to Food Court, a podcast exploring issues in food and law. I'm your host, Glenford Jameson. I'm a food lawyer in Toronto, and I run GS Jameson & Company, a law firm that services clients in the food sector, including not-for-profits, charities, startups, and small and medium-sized enterprises. So what is Food Court? Well, on this podcast, I'll be speaking with colleagues and professionals about what they do, about how food affects our lives, about food law and policy, and about virtually anything from agricultural production to novel foods to nutrition and digestion. I hope you find the contents of this podcast as interesting as I do, and I welcome you to join in our conversation, where I can be found as at GS Jameson on Twitter or Instagram, or on our website at food.gsjameson.com. Lastly, I ask that you remember that nothing here is meant to be considered legal advice. Thanks for listening. Well, here it is, 2016. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the food court. Now acclaimed by our peers. Welcome to the food court won the award for best new blog at the 2015 Canadian Law Blog Awards. There are some extraordinary content creators in the legal community in Canada, so we're thrilled to be recognized as new talent and inspired to keep working and learning. And we're going to have to find a way to check our egos. Thanks to those who recommended us to friends and to the folks at lawblogs.ca. Also, bears noting, great friend of the podcast, Dan Coles of Owen Bird LLP, won Best Practitioner blog for his work on alcohol and advocacy. Dan appeared on the podcast last fall when he spoke with me about liquor law reform in BC. So congratulations are in order to Dan. Now, because we're big-time award winners, we've broken our first season into two segments. It's the fashionable thing to do. The first half was in the fall, those first three episodes with Carly Dunster, Dan Coles, and Abir Day. Then the holidays hit, and corporate lawyers know this period of time better as the year-end rush, which was busy. Then we took a month to clean up post-closing issues, and now we're back. But beginning with this episode, we have four episodes lined up for you over each of the next four months. After this episode, Ryan Donovan, co-owner of Richmond Station and one of the smartest guys in hospitality, will be speaking with me about tipping and staffing a kitchen. Frank Portman, a health and safety lawyer with Stringer LLP, will be discussing major occupational health and safety issues that food businesses encounter, and also Alberta's Enhanced Protection for Farm and Ranch Workers Act which is a serious piece of legislation that's going to change farms across Alberta. Lastly, we have two guests on to talk about not-for-profits in the food sector whose identities are to be revealed. Now, I am appearing on a panel at the Ottawa Law Review Symposium at the University of Ottawa Law School on Thursday, February 25th. It's on antibiotic resistance and impacts on agriculture, food safety, and regulation. I'm really excited to be speaking on this matter with my co-panelists. I think it's incredibly important. Now, the symposium is open to academics, the bench, uh, legal medical practitioners, uh, students, 
policymakers and the public. So if you're in the area, definitely come check it out. The keynote speaker is Stephen Hoffman. He's a director of the Global Strategy Lab at Ottawa Law. He's an incredible young scholar on global health issues and is an exceptional human being generally. So definitely, if you can, join me on the 25th at Ottawa Law. It should be very interesting. But now on to this podcast. Jamie Baxter is joining me today. He's a professor at the Schulich School of Law at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He and I met up last fall and then got to working together after I spoke at Schulich Law on the practice of food law with fellow food lawyer Dan Kutcher, from which I'm going to post a segment of my talk there as bonus content following this episode. To the substance of this podcast, Jamie noticed that students are asking questions about non-traditional ways of looking at the practice of law, both substantively and how their practice may align with their personal values. Climate law, entertainment law, elder law, and food law are examples of that. Now, Jamie is a former economist with origins on a small family hog farm in rural Ontario, so he's focused his research on land use and property law. He's written on issues relating to the limited transitional tools available for family farmers, for example, who'd wish to find someone to continue their farming when their kids aren't interested in taking on that family farm. Uh, He's spending time talking about what I consider food law problems, thinking about agricultural and land use laws as connecting to larger food-related issues of access, trade, food security, justice, and health and safety. As luck would have it, food law also happens to be one of the areas that was of interest to both his students and to Jamie's personal research interests. So Jamie's keen on this topic. Now, we recorded this episode to talk abstractly about legal education and where food law might fit. However, when I was editing this recording, it seemed a lot more like our talk was more focused than that. In a way, it sounds like we're conspiring to create a food law institute or journal or clinic or program uh, at a law school in Canada. Because currently none exists. Like That's right, like none. In Europe, they've been at this for 50 years. In the US, they've been at food law and policy for 10 or 15. Harvard, UCLA, Michigan State, Iowa, Vermont, Arkansas. Nice work, good journals, conferences, institutes, research fellows. A living tree of academic writing and knowledge. And that's important because it bears fruit in better consulted laws, a more able bench and bar. Ultimately, it results in better food systems for citizens. And that's really important. So give this a listen and let us know what you think. Maybe you could be part of something new in legal education in Canada. Jamie joined me from his office in Halifax in January. I think I think the origin story is super neat, right? Like I think, so you growing up on a farm in Ontario with like sort of maybe quasi, I'm picturing back to the lander parents and then growing up and I presume like maybe skateboarding a little bit on a countryside road is, is like super entertaining to me. And it fits into your, your narrative here. Like what we're talking about today is pretty neat because it's this, this wonderful mix of, of law economics, land use planning, and there are three subject areas that have slowly been unbundled to the detriment of all, I think. And so, so growing up in Tilsonburg, like what was that, what was that like for you? Like, what did you see and how have you used that in your, in your study? Part of it is the, the trajectory that my, um, you know, my own family kind of took and, and the struggles that they had with, you know, issue around issues of maintaining scale, for example, in the production of, you know, for them, it was, they were hog farmers, um, you know, trying to, 
you know, kind of keep in tune with a, a relatively a small or small scale operation, um, but still, you know, making a, a go of it in terms of the business enterprise. And then eventually finding out that that, that was largely unsustainable. They, they couldn't um, find a good way to, to maintain that, you know, those kind of balances. And so they kind of got out of that game and, and went, you know, I think back to uh, a different sort of model, you know, uh, producing vegetables, having a small B&B, you know, trying to find ways to manage their land and, and their kind of conservation space in a way that made sense to them and was integrated into communities. So I think that's really been a big influence, uh, certainly for me, just seeing how they've attempted to navigate all of those, you know, different kind of pressures on the production side and, 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 and then some, to some extent, you know, their kind of struggles with law and all that, right? How do you make some pretty, you know, mundane things like local land use regulations uh, around multiple residences work for their visions of shared space? Um, and um, I think it carried with that a lot. And a lot of that, you know, kind of informs what I've become interested in as a, uh, as a researcher uh, or as a legal scholar. One of your papers that I've read that I thought was really neat, and it sort of expanded in a lot of ways like when I think about a food law problem is uh, University of Maine paper on on succession planning in farms. And it seems to me, I mean, given what you just said, like it must have come from a very personal place. Uh, there are just like virtually no tools other than traditional ones to, to move the small family farm forward to uh, a next generation. And so we see more consolidation. Yeah, this, I mean, this is a, a problem I kind of come back to at various kind of points or, or angles. And, and I'm just starting into a bit of a new phase on, on thinking through the kind of more this basic problem, um, you know, right now, but but the whole idea of this massive transition, right, that's kind of coming um, on the horizon between, you know, kind of an, an aging farming uh, uh, production side population um, but then along with that, the kind of breakdown of the conventional uh, family farm, right? And so where is that land going to go? Um, uh, and, and, and how does a new sort of generation of people who are going to grow food uh, in that space, uh, how do they access that kind of resource, right? But that kind of on an individual basis and that collective resource uh, in terms of... Um, like knowledge uh, transfer. Yeah, and knowledge transfer, right? I mean, in terms of, you know, they're not coming up with the way that we, we, we technically... We, Conventionally, tend to think about people, you know, getting into the farming business, which is that they learn it from their parents or or their their uh, you know their community, their associates. Uh, you know, now people are going more through formal training programs, and I think that is great. I mean, there's a lot of um, attempt to kind of, in some sense, formalize or codify some uh, aspects of the knowledge that that we've had for a long time. That that sometimes you know they find difficult to to transition between between users and farmers, and so I think a lot of that work actually is a very positive side of you know, the kind of flip to a new generation, but we're, we're still kind of stuck, I think, a little bit with this conundrum of how to transfer these resources on, on both sides, right? Because, you know, you want this new generation to have access. Um, they often can't afford to, to just buy it outright um, because land prices have, have increased so much. And then, of course, existing farmers and landowners, you know, they have an interest as well in terms of remaining on the farm or, or in the community, um, finding a way to retire on the equity that they've got in that farm. And so, you know, there's this disconnect when you, when you don't have the family farm model of, of, of often informally kind of transitioning between generations. Um, how can we en envision that kind of transfer of resources? And so, you know, for me, part of the answer is it started to be in thinking a little bit about um, kind of shared uh, resource arrangements, right, that have fallen into the background behind a more you know, kind of private property kind of model. It's interesting. I've been thinking about this issue 
almost from the, the complete opposite end of things. And in Alberta, there was a new piece of legislation that came into effect called, called Bill 6. Uh, it's actually got an act name, which I will I'll bring up or link to. Uh, but the idea is, is uh, farm workers have traditionally been exempted from most employment standards. Minimum wages don't apply. Uh, there's broader farm insurance, but, but there isn't necessarily like a worker's comp regime, especially for family members or for people who are interning, let's say, on, on farms. Uh, and that just changed in Alberta, which has really sort of been a, uh, a rude awakening for, for a cultural way of life, which is like you grow up on a farm and you do chores and you do some, some work around there. Or if you are a, uh, I mean, the thing that catches my eye most is if you are a woofer, sort of like a worldwide organic uh, farming intern, basically, who, who works for a stipend and the knowledge transfer, uh, all of a sudden you're going to be captured under uh, more standard workplace uh, and safety regimes. And in one sense, it's really great because, uh, I mean, workplace safety is, is so critical. Uh, but on, on, in another way, uh, we start to think about sort of the ethics of, of exempting farms from uh, unpaid internships uh, and, and that sort of thing. And so there's this like weird divide where like my thought is, is in the next couple of years, we're going to be seeing, again, those unpaid workers uh, who are there for the knowledge transfer to start to get targeted by, by provinces who see that as, as ethically wrong and putting another barrier in between in between that knowledge transfer. I mean, for these small farms in particular uh, and for organic farms, which is predominantly where you see it, like this idea of permaculture, this idea of, of, of organics, uh, it really depends on on these volunteer workers a lot of time and they're there to learn. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a fascinating example. I mean, the the debates going on in Alberta right now around the the bill. I mean, have been they're amazing in how vehement they've been. You really see people. Uh, you know, this it does seem like this kind of clash of, of you know values is often how the um, the debate is is really being being framed and the, and the future of the you know the family farm not only as a productive resource but as a cultural uh, resource. You know, for me, I think it's just it's an, it's another example of. In some sense, this this really this broader phenomenon of the clash or the the confrontation of kind of formal law in uh, a realm of kind of social and economic life, it's it's largely being governed, I think, a lot by kind of informality, informal norms, um, you know, family and community norms, and 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 you know, so the attempt to apply workplace safety legislation to family farms obviously obviously disrupts a lot of the kind of workplace structure or employment structure of the. Of the farm and people are really kind of struggling to figure out how you know they can kind of how law can come into the the, the kind of family farm or the, ha- the family farm can kind of come to law in a way that isn't isn't you know totally disruptive or or um causes all this dissonance and i think um i think this is 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 plays itself out in all of these different sorts of ways right um there's been some people doing some really interesting writing on this this really basic idea of why i guess it's a question in some sense right as well why hasn't Farming, or I mean, particularly those who are all, all uh, advocating for you know farming reforms or reforms of the food system, or generally, why they have not kind of maybe been a bit hesitant to come to law. Maybe it's partly for you know partly uh, as part of the story of how the family farm, for example, has been positioned with respect to law. Um, but I, I think part of the feeling maybe is that there's some inevitability there, right? Um, that that you can only remain outside of the formal kind of legal realm in all of these different right. areas for so long. So how do you make that connect in a way that suits everyone's needs? Or... I don't do a ton of agricultural work, but I encounter the similar attitudes. It's odd, right? Because it's sort of the last 
it's the last uh, frontier, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, but this, I mean, this is uh, super helpful because it brings us into to what I want to speak with you about today. And that's the idea of where food law might fit in legal education. And one of the things that I find really interesting about food law is it, uh, it isn't a traditional practice area. Uh, it encompasses all kinds of different uh, issues, different regulatory regimes, different contractual and common law issues, different torts, and uh, and even criminal pieces. Um, but it's coming to them in an odd way, and it often showcases this conflict between uh, societal norms, cultural norms, uh, way of life arguments, uh, and things that people are genuinely pretty passionate or invested in. And... Uh, uh, and so, so our thought is, is, does this have a home in law schools? And if so, what does it look like? So I wanted to, to learn more from you about uh, where law school education is at right now. I mean, I'm ugh, aging. Uh, and so maybe 10 years ago, a little bit less, uh, I went into a law school uh, and, and we had very siloed areas of law or practice that we learned independently of each other. And then we took more courses that were more specialized in those areas. And uh, we wrote exams that were very stressful and then some papers. Uh, and there was some clinical education opportunities available. Uh, but that was really sort of, that was the basis for it. Uh, and, and I wanted to know from you, I mean, what's kind of neat is we're roughly the same vintage. From when you went to law school to now, have you seen a change in, in how law school has been provided? Um, you know, in some ways, I think the the, the short answer is is, is no. Uh, uh, at least in terms of how law schools are, um, you know, kind of responding. I mean, that is to say, it is changing, but the change is is slow. And and we're in this period, I think, very much of of flux. And that's why the food and food law kind of area is so interesting, right? Because it really, I think, brings into the foreground what is I think a perennial tension in law schools uh, in part, right? Which is the struggle to figure out what this enterprise is. Is it about training professionals in for professional practice? Is it about engaging with a field of knowledge? And there's no doubt that it's both of those uh, things. Um, but, you know, I think there's a, there's a ton of, of conversation in, in, in Canadian law schools right now about issues of what constitutes a core competency uh, in, in law, um, what students should be or need to be learning, and how we go about processes of curriculum reform to you know, meet the ways in which you know, not only the legal profession is shifting, but also you know, what students want um, or are demanding when they kind of come to, to law school. And so the issue of the way in which we've traditionally taught law, and it's been this way for a very long time in terms of what those kind of core areas are, um, it really poses a challenge for something like food law, I think, because it has, a, you know, we have a tendency to want to teach in these conventional categories of, you know, property and contract and tort, uh, criminal and constitutional or public. Um, and, and these categories that we have constructed in, in the kind of legal pedagogy don't necessarily match up very well to kind of problems in the world. Right. And so how do you translate and how do students and law and law students and, and new lawyers translate that educational experience into, you know, doing something like food law, which is, 
you know, responsive to a set of or constellation of social problems or social challenges that draw on all sorts of different areas of kind of formal laws we, we tend to teach them. So in some sense, food law poses a real challenge, right, to, to the, the, the pedagogical model that we've had for a long time. And certainly law schools, I think, know this to be the case. Um, uh, uh, that is to say that the, the curriculum's been changing. Uh, some, like the University of Calgary, have taken the leap, I think, to, to, to sort of try and re- configure their their curriculum um uh i think it's a little bit inevitable in terms of uh, uh law schools pursuing different paths of reform but food law is in some sense so interesting because we might think about for example how we would structure a curriculum so that students uh, might be better suited to deal with that constellation of uh of problems once they come out so I mean, food law i think makes me a better practitioner because uh it it forces me to in your words, to, to really sort of search out the constellation of issues that come up when a, a client brings a problem to me. It's usually got more facets uh, than what has been described. What it forces me to do is, like I usually describe it as sort of like there's a rich ecology of, uh, of those different silos uh, sort of expose themselves when I look at those problems. So I find it really, really rich as an area for study. And I find one of the things that I do, well, I mean, for me, uh, and I'm definitely not complaining because things have worked out okay, I think. But uh, I didn't have the opportunity to study food law or didn't really have an opportunity to study food law. And so I do a lot of my study uh, on my own uh, and try and put together educational materials or uh, papers or a little bit of writing or, or even just this podcast. But what I struggle with is, is in a way, you need to learn those, those basic pieces. You need to like, have the way that you think changed before you can you can deal with this so something is really attractive to me is uh and maybe this ties into like another huge and expansive topic of of where the state of articling is in in 2016 but uh it ties into this idea of once you got the basics and you can really think constructively in issues of contract and you can delineate them from issues of uh of tort or property law or that sort of thing uh all of a sudden, you've got this ecology uh, in the problems that are presented to you in food law that, to me, would be a wonderful way to help sort of take uh, legal knowledge or the fluidity of, uh, of legal understanding to another level. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. I mean, part of these dimensions are you, know, you have to take this enormous body of knowledge that's kind of aggregated through you know, the law, the common law, and, and public law, and, and legislation, and, and then try and do this translation exercise to, to make it meet, you know, these kinds of new fields of social concern. Um, so I think there, that, that piece of it really also has to do with, you know, the diversity of the curriculum that you, you know, you can offer. Um, and, and there may be ways of integrating, you know, I'm working on this right now in my property law uh, course, you know, how do you make a topic like, um, qualified estates, uh, uh, which is, you know, I, I'm sure just gives lots of uh, lawyers shivers to, to think about, uh, you know, having to relearn or learn those topics. Um, and and they're, they're difficult because they're highly technical. Um, but, but, you know, the real challenge from a kind of teaching perspective is how do you make those also relevant, right? Um, uh, so how might you bring a case study uh, in that kind of shows how someone might qualify their land to preserve farmland, for example, or 
you know, um, achieve other kinds of social objectives that, that then students can see and, and understand how that might be put into practice. Uh, so, you know, the talk about kind of case-based uh, method or, or problem-based learning, I think, is all, is all part of this picture in terms of, you know, doing this translation and connection exercise to, you know, really make salient, right, these categories um, into how people, as you say, and you, and you, like, as in your own practice, are really going to be using them. So you mean to tell me that you don't get some perverse pleasure out of making students in the abstract learn the difference between reversion and remainder? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love it, actually. I, I, I have to admit, these are some of my favorite classes. Mostly because I also think that it, it is a fun, you know, it's a fun puzzle. Uh, so, you know, do, do, doing the exercises, um, I actually get a lot of, uh, I'll, I'll, be, I'll admit, I get a lot of enjoyment from. I, I'm not sure my students would say that, but uh, I hope to do some of them. <laughs> Just remember that so clearly in the abstract, like essentially flashcarding. Just being like, okay, this is this, this is this. This will be on the exam. This will be four points. Right. It's also very funny because it, it deviates a bit from how we teach otherwise. It's very, uh, you know, it is flashcard, right? It's like you could really, it's almost like a, a true and false and multiple choice. But uh, but maybe there's a bit of a release there in terms of sometimes how students learn it because it gives their brain a break from, from other modes of analysis. You know what? There is a fairness to that. There is a fairness to that, but it's, but it's, <laughs> or maybe that's just me justifying. This is why we spend two weeks on this. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, well, and it stays with you shockingly. So something that we've seen in legal education in the United States is, is a move forward to food policy or food law and policy. And I think one of the reasons is, is because of what we've described here. It's because it's, it's a fairly rich and complex area. I think one of the other reasons that makes it rich is I mean, one of the joys of being a law student and being a law professor, I assume, is, is not having a client. Uh, and so you're not really advocating for anyone's interests other than those who you, who you choose. Whereas in my job, I'm working for uh, a processor or a hospitality organization or a not-for-profit. And so I'm a mouthpiece for their goals and we help get them there. But it's, it's very focused, and I can't take a moment and sort of think like, man, well, as a consumer here, I would really like this. Or as a, as a land use planner, I might consider this. That's really not part of my job or not what I'm being paid for. But as a, as a law professor, I mean, is that, an, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's true. I mean, I think that's true. Um, to some extent, I mean, I think people have different positions in terms of their own, you know, their own work or their own research. Certainly as a, as a teacher, I think one of the most fascinating parts about you know kind of being a law professor is is just trying to suss out all of those different um, potential angles. Um, so my you know my planning law course, for example, we spend you know most of the first part of the course just trying to understand you know who are the kind of relevant perspectives and interests in this you know kind of complex and messy problem of trying to organize human settlements right through law or through other means, um, other ways of kind of regulating. Uh, sort of social and spatial life. And so, you know, just those kind of conversations alone can be very rich to set the stage. And then, you know, you can really see students kind of drawing out their legal analysis by, you know, trying to account for all those kinds of perspectives. So we do exercises about, you know, doing just that, asking people to act for a developer and then act for a community group. And, and how would you be able to, you know, kind of um, navigate between those positions and understand um, the different perspectives? So, you know, I think part of the process of teaching law students is finding those areas of kind of law and practice that really, you know, work really, really well, I guess, to kind of uh, illustrate 
um, how complex those kind of uh, those kind of interactions can really be. I suppose this brings us to to where clinical education exists now for students. Uh, or maybe let's flip this. Let's continue on the consumer angle. So those that consume legal education, how are how are students looking at their education? Like what are they searching for now? Yeah, I think um, I think students. I mean, I think the one thing that maybe some of the challenges of the you know the market for legal services, some of the the dilemmas around articling, are you know some of the the the, the things that those um, phenomena are pushing students to do is really take a close close look at. You know what they want their professional life to look like, and what some of the kind of variety of options might be. So, you know, I have a lot of students I think coming to talk to me, and really, and starting from the perspective, for example, of this is what I want my you know my life, both my personal and my practice life to look like. Um, you know, what would practice, what areas of practice, or um, what kinds of ways of getting into law would match up to those kind of aims. Um, and I think it's a you know, it's a, uh, I don't know if that's a new way of law students looking at it, but it certainly strikes me as being a way that, that my students are a lot of times coming to, you know, these bigger questions about, you know, where they're, where they're going to specialize or where they're going to practice or how, um, you know, or not, or, or finding other ways to uh, engage uh, with law. Um, so we can have, you know, conversations around food law there uh, as just an example, because you know, people, I think it's a nice, both are coming with an interest in that field in various ways and, um, and then they can start to talk about um, how they might want to kind of shape legal practice to kind of engage with those different um, dimensions. So, um, so certainly that seems to me to be a, a, a trend and, and a way, you know, and going back to our kind of theme about translating these conventional legal categories um, into practice, I think it's the exercise of going out and looking at the kinds of, you know, concerns that people have, the kinds of personal values that they hold, and then you know, kind of tracing backwards into the legal curriculum or into law school or, or into law more generally, um, you know, what kind of tools they might ultimately bring out. It makes being a lawyer a lot more enjoyable. I remember so clearly in articling, uh, working until like four in the morning and we were working on a, uh, a carpet matting company, buying another carpet matting company. And I was just looking at my computer thinking like, I could, I should be sleeping. This is... This is important, but I don't know how important this really is, and maybe that reflects what you're what you're seeing in your students. Yeah, I also think that it's it's also in you know in the diversity. I mean, students come, I think, with a a, a vast diversity of, of kind of um, entry points into law school of, of reasons for coming and, and for things that they 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 want out of it. And I think I mean this is part of also part of this I um, you know the conversation around curricular reform and, and 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 what kinds of things we should be teaching students. And and one of the um, uh, trajectories or pushes has been to, to do spend more time right in law school at least engaging with these hard questions and, uh, about you know getting students to be um, or at least allowing them spaces to be self-reflective about some of these things so they don't have to make these calls too much on the fly when they're you know pressured for jobs and that sort of thing um, and I my expectation was that pe students will come out on all range you know all, all parts of the kind of um, continuum on this uh, sort of thing and yeah I, I, I think that that's a good thing in the sense that Especially in the employment situation now with law and lawyers, it's 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 not necessarily a question um, uh, that we that there isn't space for everyone to do their thing in law. I guess as I see it, um, right? That that people can find their own kind of um, their own modes of practice, and for those uh, you know that want to you know kind of specially craft their practice to really align with you know other aspects of their life or particular uh, sort of. 
um, aspirations that they have or, or, or social ends. And I think there certainly is lots of space for that. And, and, and then for those who, who want a different role for their professional life or their practice, then that's, you know, that's acceptable too. But I think um, it, the trick is, is trying to kind of suss out what those options really look like, right? Um, you know, so kind of linking again back to the food law theme, I think, you know, it's like that is an example of just even, you know, getting or ha having conversations with students that that's a viable area of practice, right? And, and Glenn, your, your practice is a great example, um, you know, because it's saying it's like there's a story that people can see in terms of kind of creating their own, um, you know, their own kind of space and practice. Uh, uh, and I think that that's uh, really good for students to sort of see because it, it kind of does say that there are probably lots of other areas out there that look like that. Um, and how you get to that through the lens of your own, you know, kind of enacting your own personal values, or maybe you just happen into it for one reason or another. Um, uh, I think that that's great, but I, I do think the law schools have a real role in trying to promote that way of sort of seeing law and legal practice. Well, I'm going to blush a little bit and then take your compliment, and let's uh, so let's do it. Let's build a food law program. Uh, I guess the first question is, in terms of helping students get their head around this stuff, uh, I think that there's a small workshop at Dow and in a couple of other schools in Canada there are very small sort of like here's an intro to EU agricultural law or food law or commodities law and then there are courses that relate to uh, health intellectual property trade environmental law human rights and all of those in a way can deal with food law how do you think we grab this concept and and build it into someone's legal education. Yeah, this is a this is a great question, and and, and something that I kind of started to think a little bit about in, in bits and pieces. Here, I think you know, for me, I think I've started from the point where I think it's really important to try and connect up uh, uh, some kind of dedicated pro uh, program for you know sort of student learning, uh, whether or not that's uh, a suite of course offerings. Uh, uh, with or without a, a clinical offering where students can engage in this area of practice in various ways. That's one piece. And I also see, you know, the kind of the research piece um, being an important one. So starting to connect up, um, uh, you know, lawyers and legal academics who are doing work in this uh, area to, to, you know, start to build in just the basic uh, sort of notion or public consciousness around this as a you know, as an area of law that we can think about um, through a particular lens, right? Maybe using different kinds of analytical tools or theoretical frameworks, but but just trying to sort of start thinking about that as a kind of coherent, um, as a coherent piece. And I think the reason for those, both of those sides, that is the kind of teaching or, or student learning part and the, and the research side is that they're very much uh, mutually reinforcing. And so as far as I see them kind of going forward, right? Um, you kind of need people with expertise in various areas to kind of start building the programs and offering the courses and, and, and running the clinics. And then you, you know, need the opportunities to try and, you know, make those, um, those kind of course offerings or those, those learning opportunities available to students. You know, as we know we have some models now to look at, particularly in the U.S. Um, you know, there's been some very successful kind of precedents, I guess, for the idea of a food law clinic and food law programs, some which, after I've started to look into them, have been around for longer than I knew about or expected. Um, and so, you know, just starting to draw on some of those experiences, I think, is a good place to start in terms of thinking about, you know, how, you know, Canadian law programs might um, build this in. So when you're looking to, to balance those two pieces, so actual formal education and then, and then research, I guess the models that we see most often are uh, so actual classes and then to some degree like a uh, Dow has like a business law designation a maritime law designation so if you take a certain number of credits in those areas then 
then you're noted as someone who has focused their education on that area. So there's there's that there's uh, having an institute, so uh, an area that that produces a lot of research and maybe does some directed research papers, uh, and is sort of designed to to foster some real study in that area. And then the third is really is clinical work. I don't think that any of those really exist in Canada right now at the the law school level. I think that they they brush on them. I mean, so with clinics, the most common are uh, criminal clinics and then family law clinics, and we see those. So in Toronto, there's Downtown Legal Services. Uh, it's run by U of T, uh, and they do some really important and amazing work, but it's focused on access to justice and poverty. With institutes, we see that most often in uh, areas that I find more analogous to to food law, uh, and so health law institutes are a huge thing, and there are a variety of them across Canada and across North America. Uh, there are also institutes for human rights, for criminal justice, uh, and a variety of other more traditional practice areas. And then there's uh, there are courses, and there are courses for everything, and they can really take, I mean, this is what's exciting about legal education now, is they can really take whatever form the prof wants. So from your perspective, What's the first step here? Is it, or I guess the, the fourth component would be a, uh, a journal, uh, creating a journal or a place or a place for people to write on expressly this. Uh, and in, in my research, like Canada has all of sort of the constituent parts to put on all of those things. So there's uh, lawyers in Toronto that work for union-side labor firms that have written on the constitutional arguments for access to food. And so, so there's actually academic writing that would fit in a food law journal. Uh, there are uh, aspects of food law that come up in clinic work. Um, and, and there are courses where I, I wrote a paper, a horrible paper, in international trade law uh, at Dow on, on insurance components of, of highly perishable food items in international trade. And so, so I sort of built in that aspect into my legal education and that was the only way I could figure out how to do it. But for you, like, like so what's the first step and, and where do you think you want to get? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, just was thinking about as you're, you're, you're talking and this is the kind of precursor to answering your, the, the, the bigger question, which is, you know, this kind of presents a fascinating, you know, kind of research question as something itself, right? It's like, how does one construct a discipline? Right, um, and then how does one, you know, kind of roll that into an institution or a set of institutions? Um, and it would be fascinating to know what that story looks like in other fields. So you mentioned health law, you know, a field that you know didn't have the same, um, uh, wasn't constructed in the same way. I suspect thirty or forty years ago, right? And so, what's the story with how those um, kind of came into being? I think we could learn a lot, probably from you know um, some of those lessons, or comparatively, like I say, in the states, how this is kind of coming to be. Um, and, and, and doing that work. So I, I think that's an interesting question to me. I don't have an answer for, you know, what that story might look like um, uh, right now. But in terms of, you know, kind of going forward and, and um, pursuing it, I think, I, think it is, I think it seems to me that you can move several of these pieces along together. And I'm a fan of, you know, kind of an incremental approach to some extent, right? Um, I think there's probably a lot of trial and error here in terms of you know, how to build up both the institutional knowledge for, um, you know, sort of doing food law and policy uh, and, um, and then trying to find, you know, ways uh, uh, to integrate that in the curriculum and, and, and create clinics and so forth. So, you know, I, I think my kind of vision of it in, in various settings and various law schools in Canada is for, for people that are um, interested in the areas in various ways to kind of just start doing it, right? Start doing course offerings, um, uh, uh, perhaps in, in the absence of formal 
you know, clinic structures to have, um, you know, to grow some student placements uh, and, and, and do so in a responsive way, right? I mean, I think partly what makes food law interesting um, is that it tends to be fairly, at least parts of it tend to be fairly local in part, right? Um, at least some of the research questions I'm particularly interested in are, are kind of locally um, set. So, so for example, there are things out, you know, kind of um, needs out there that can be responded to, I think, immediately. So I'll just give you an example from, from some of the agricultural work I do. Um, this issue around the transition between, you know, uh, generations of farms and access for new farmers. I understand from talking to people in um, doing work in the area that there's a real need for legal expertise here. That is to say to design, um, you know, succession plans or shared resource arrangements, uh, you know, um, ways to share farmland resources or farm collectively or um, find legal models that work uh, for particular contexts. You know, there's a, a real need and a pretty concrete problem and, and, and shaping um, a kind of a clinical offering or a placement or, or a set of uh, research projects around that that students could then be involved in. It seems to me to be a very productive way to kind of go about doing it um, and then potentially to grow, to grow from there. I think that would kind of give the project some, some rootedness. And, right. and, if, and I guess also there's the side of that would be that it also potentially gives it some kind of path dependency. And I don't know if that's good or bad. I mean, there are questions about where you might start from in terms of um, kind of grounding food law, what dis different disciplines you might draw from that exists already, and, and probably, you know, how you go about doing that has a lot to say with where you kind of end up. And, and again, I think, hopefully, the hope is, I guess, that different law faculties will become interested in this and you get a range, right? I think that's what you do see in the U.S., for example, you know, you see a range of, of kind of food programs and, um, and clinics and law schools that come from sort of agricultural roots so you know arkansas iowa vermont have these you know these programs that are i think are steeped in this kind of at least kind of production side and then you have others um mm -hmm. that kind of come from the health side for example so that again is kind of interesting to see where these kind of end up and what they're drawing on and they're often located within larger entities that deal with health law or agricultural law or something absolutely well i mean harvard's the the harvard or resnick or cucla are sort of the great examples of of health law institutes that, that have built food law policy issues into them uh, and built those sort of programs. What's, what's fascinating, so, so even just to bring that up is this amazing, right? Because it's, uh, I mean, across the U.S., like the, both examples that you've given are great. The health law example is the one that I refer to frequently when trying to explain to lawyers that don't know what a food law lawyer is to give them some context. Uh, and so I think that's, that's spot on. Uh, but this idea of, of having sort of a, a two-way stream of designing a, a food law program or designing this discipline into legal education is particularly fascinating. This idea of, of essentially, I mean, food law for me, when I picture it, it's the overused phrase of farm to fork. And, and a lot of programs in the United States are based out of that, that health law perspective. So we're talking about diabetes or obesity. We're talking about like end user issues. And then they're approaching food law problems from that end user piece. Whereas uh, programs like Arkansas or Wisconsin or Iowa, Vermont, like they're coming at it from the exact opposite angle. So they're looking at things that maybe they're trying to bring together uh, land use planning and agricultural production again. Or they're talking about tackling those same health law issues, but with a keen acknowledgement of the role of the farmer agricultural food production. They come to... Similar answers sometimes, uh, they come to very different answers at other times, and that uh, is just this wonderfully rich uh, aspect 
of, of this study that, that should be terribly interesting for someone who wants to, to engage in both sort of an academic look at, uh, at law or legal frameworks and also at, at outcomes for, for various stakeholders along that path. Yeah, I mean, I th- and I also think that there's, you know, I think get a piece of that. There's there are probably other routings that maybe um, uh, are also available too, right? I mean, I think it, you know, things like rooting in uh, issues of trade law, for example, right? Um, uh, coming at the from a, uh, you know, there would be maybe from a more of an internationalist uh, angle, you know, there there are all these different potential entry points um, that that. Uh, you know, we could maybe think about uh, as ways to kind of ground this kind of move into or this kind of construction of this new, uh, this discipline in Canada. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, I think the, the, the pluralism of it is what partly what makes it, um, what makes it exciting. And of course, then there's also kind of uh, practical um, institutional considerations about, you know, already where there are sort of centers of expertise, um, whether or not it makes, it would make sense to you know, build on those uh, and build out. And, and I think we've seen some of that kind of comparatively, you know, whether or not there's challenges there in terms of, you know, trying to carve out, whether or not there's about kind of carving out space for this as a program versus kind of building in. I think these are all kind of, I expect would be challenges in trying to, um, in trying to find ways to kind of make this idea uh, real. But but I, I do, I mean, I think the real strength of it is all of these connections, right? Um, I think it's a fairly small move to try and find institutional homes for this or intellectual homes for these kinds of ideas. Um, and I think it's also exciting in the perspective of a growing, it seems to me, consciousness from the bar, right, in, in, in um, that as a project and then, you know, law schools kind of connecting to that and being responsive to, um, to what's right, happening. Right, right. Well, I mean, it all points to, like, from a student's perspective, it's the opportunity to sort of demonstrate legal and policy skills. Often I find what's needed in food is, there's no clear place for a lot of governmental actors to turn to get advice on certain things. And so in terms of, uh, of being able to advise or, or find projects to do, I think that there is an amazing resource for, for academics and students alike to, to really have an opportunity to do some meaningful work where there aren't already uh, 10 different uh, faculties that are highly attuned to these issues and have very clear positions staked out. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think that also reflects, you know, to my mind, what students are really particularly interested um, uh, in this field and in connected fields is, is you know, all, any opportunity to be able to engage in that kind of policy work um, or institutional design or uh, analysis that, you know, I think those opportunities, students are, you know, are, are often looking for those um, as ways to, you know, again, kind of suss out what the potential options would, would be for putting their kind of um, their legal education into into practice. And so, um, you know, things like working for food policy councils or, or government or, um, um, uh, you know, working on these basic policy issues, uh, that in itself, I think, is, you know, just as a, as a, as a kind of point of focus for, for, for student kind of thought and activity, um, it does open up a whole bunch of novel uh, areas. And like you say, I think I get the sense that there's a real demand for, for thinking about this and for the, you know, the particular expertise that lawyers can kind of bring to those, uh, to those humans. It's going to enrich our, our food laws. It's the craziest thing people care about where their food is coming from. And I, that was extinguished for like 60 years. It's just shocking to me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great, I mean, the thing that makes it so interesting is it, it, it you know, in some sense, it's very familiar to everyone. Um, you know, it, any of these areas I think of life that really engage such questions of basic values always kind of create such interesting fodder for, you know, for, for work, whether or not that's, you know, through legal means and, and policy, um, it's, 
it's I, I've often find at least the, the the bit of ways that I've already found to integrate, for example, in the curriculum, the students always have something to say, right? And it's always something that um, you know elicits ideas and opinions about um, kind of what's happening, and so. Yeah, if people have entry points into that through, you know, kind of more formal means, I think it's, I think it's great. The other thing I was just thinking about when, when um, you were talking is the kind of interdisciplinarity, right? I mean, I think there's also lots of great points to think about where law schools are situated with respect to other faculties and universities, and, and being able to, um, and to kind of draw on those. Um, uh, you know, law schools, I think, do when they do it well, do a particularly good job of drawing up those kind of interdisciplinary connections, um, and it seems to me that food law also presents lots of opportunities. Right. Well, I mean, so for example, I mean, you have a background at the University of Guelph, right? So, so when when you're encountering or contemplating a, a, an issue in agricultural production, for example, which is a specialty of Guelph's, presumably you're able to tap people there and, and ask them their perspective on certain issues, right? Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, the conversations I've had already some of the folks have, you know, kind of brought some some interesting entry points into this in terms of where you know lawyers and law schools might kind of play a part in. You know, what is the broader kind of landscape of people who are working on food policy and, um, and, and kind of food issues? And, and one of the needs, for example, I sometimes see people articulate is this, you know, what is, I think, often this particular skill of lawyers and being able to take and synthesize a lot of the work that he is done, whether or not you're a land use economist or whether or not you're a political scientist uh, studying this from a policy angle. And, and then translate that back into kind of legal change, right? Um, there does seem to be an existing gap in that piece of the puzzle, right, around food systems reform or food policy reform. Um, and, you know, so maybe that's just also part of the broader demand that, it, in particular, the lawyers or, or um, um, legal thinkers can really kind of fill. I guess my, my last question for you is, uh, is what do you think uh, being a student at a food policy clinic, so clinical education-based uh, program, what would that look like? If you were to sort of close your eyes and picture it, this is a tough question to uh, to respond to. But what do you? What would you be working on? I mean, it's so expansive. So let's say it's out of Dow, uh, and you sign up for it. It's for for a semester. What do you think that student is doing? Yeah, that's a that's a great that's a good question. I think um, no, I mean, I I also think it's, I'm a fan of these kind of um, you know these kind of spiral curricular models. That is to say, I think the ideal right is if you're coming in. Um, uh, you know, particular student with an interest or a growing interest in this kind of area that you, you, know, you kind of start early and often, right? Um, so you've got some, some, some opportunity to get engaged. Um, you know, first years of law school are always full with other things, but, 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 you know, so one element that I see of this is a really vibrant, you know, kind of student community uh, around um, these issues. And again, I think opportunities to connect up to, you know, kind of what's happening locally. Um, um, you know, some of our student advocacy groups, uh, you know, at Dow are, are fantastic, and I can imagine, you know, what 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 a group like, you know, a similar group that's focused on food uh, issues could do for student engagement. So I think that, you know, would be fantastic. And then, you know, once you start building in more uh, formal parts of the parts of the the curriculum, um, you know, I think the opportunity, for example, for students to work really closely um, with. Uh, both with, with faculty and professors, um, hopefully with practitioners um, uh, uh, on, you know, kind of dedicated projects. I think there's a real, uh, there's real value in, in students having kind of an ongoing connection, you know, rather than just kind of writing a small piece of, of, of a report or something that, 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 that the kinds of projects that a clinic or something could engage in would 
you know, they, they would they would have some um, some traction to them, right? Um, and so that students could kind of, you know, hopefully kind of remain a part of, of those projects um, uh, maybe throughout law school or, or, or whatnot. And of course, you know, some might be of different lengths or, or durations or complexity. Uh, and, and then, um, you know, and then also um, kind of see forward outcomes so that there could be some real kind of impacts and the students could really see um, you know how their their work is actually kind of connected uh, up, up to, to results in the projects. So I think you know that would be uh, really really an ideal uh, kind of as part of the as part of the uh, program. And then you know then of course you know, a lot of student learning also has happens in in core course offerings. And so what you know where are the good entry points within the curriculum for that um, is a big question. But I think you certainly at least dedicated courses for students to be able to kind of take. Um, uh, um, it uh, is going to be a kind of core building block. So you know, this kind of integrated lots of different opportunities for people to um, to, to to engage. And and then I guess maybe the final piece. And I think this is an important part of the law school's role is then connecting students up to where they, they might carry that forward into practice, right? Um, so you know, whether or not that's through career development offices or you know other forms of, of, uh, of the way the law schools connect up to, to the kind of employment world. But you know, it's, it, I think it's, it's one piece is kind of teaching students and engaging them, and then the other is kind of facilitating their access, right, uh, to uh, some of the different ways that they're going to actually to put that into practice. So. I think that's an important area to sort of think about uh, as well. And in kind of my ideal school, you would have you know well-worn channels that students could then you know find um, good career opportunities in, uh, in the field. Um, you know, that would have a fairly broad scope that gave students the diversity of choice and so forth. To have a place to naturally fit this uh, this interest or this area would just be the most wonderful thing. And so with that, let's do it. I would love nothing more than to be able to go to Halifax and and hang out and some sort of uh, food law and policy clinic uh, or, uh, or sit in on a course and, and see, what, uh, see what these law students have to offer. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, uh, there's no doubt that you would be a, a perennial piece. And, and, you know, I think you know, we'll think about the first, uh, you know, the first named lecture you can come and, um, uh, you can come and deliver. Ah, again, blushing. Okay, Jamie Willock, thank you so much. Jamie Baxter is a law professor at the Schulich School of Law at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Following this podcast is a bonus content episode, including a short excerpt from my talk at the Schulich School of Law last fall. It's my argument for food policy and food law being included in legal education in law schools in Canada. Thanks for listening, and as always, thanks to Shane McPherson for the lovely music.